the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffland and Sonia Portillo. In this edition of the Oncogene Brief, we're talking with Dr. John E. Mendelssohn, the co-founder of RIA Health. The question we try to answer in today's program, is alcohol and the relationship to cancer a potential solution to help people reduce or stop drinking altogether? In the relationship between alcohol and cancer, we're not talking about the occasional glass of wine. We're talking about drinking unhealthy levels of alcohol and alcohol addiction and abuse, referred to as alcohol use disorder, or AUD, which may involve the occasional binge drinking, or heavy episodic drinking, or daily excessive drinking. I'm Peter Hoffland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Ongus in Brief. What's clear from the work of Dr. Mendelssohn is that he has a deep empathy for people suffering from the symptoms of alcohol abuse. To help people recover from excessive drinking and alcohol abuse, he practices evidence-based medicine and believes that specific drugs which are proven safe and effective should be used. But, more importantly, he believes that patients' outcomes must be measured objectively. After the break, we'll be back with Dr. John E. Mendelson, the co-founder of RIA Health. And welcome back. In today's program, we're talking with Dr. John E. Mendelssohn, the co-founder of RIA Health. Welcome to the Oncogene Brief, Dr. Mendelssohn. Uh, Let's start uh, with asking you this question. What is the link between the risk of cancer and alcohol consumption, and what kind of cancers are involved? Well, alcohol consumption has been linked to several cancers in a dose-dependent manner. The more alcohol you drink, the higher the risk. The primary cancers that alcohol seems to promote are the head and neck cancers, probably due to actually direct contact with alcohol with, uh, uh, with epithelial cells. So the primary cancers that alcohol is associated with are, are of, of uh, the oropharynx, pharynx, the esophagus, and the, uh, and the, uh, uh, the liver. Um, the uh, breast cancer is also elevated in, in, in alcohol uh, consumers, and, uh, as well as colorectal. So, of these cancers, which have the higher risk, uh, maybe a little bit higher risk than others? Well, esophageal cancer is, is the poster child for the, the alcohol, uh, uh, alcohol cancer risk. And uh, that can be, for, in drinkers, in drinkers, the rates of esophageal cancer are 35 to 60 times higher than they are in non-drinkers. And uh, it doesn't really seem to matter what alcohol you drink. Drinking alcohol increases your risk of esophageal cancer. Oh, that, that, that's esophageal cancer is the principal one. That's that's the one that really. The rest of the cancers have have strong associations, uh, but again, not not in the thirty five plus range, thirty five uh, uh, time range that, that esophageal cancer does. I see. Okay, so before really getting into the increased risk of alcohol abuse and cancer, can you tell us what defines moderate alcohol drinking and what constitutes heavier, like what you would consider heavy alcohol drinking? Yes. Yes, yeah, so, so, so the World Health Organization, as well as uh, uh, the National Institutes of Health, recommends that, 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 that uh, on any one occasion, women have no more than three drinks and men have no more than four drinks. That's because the reason there's a, a gender difference is because, is because women tend to weigh less than men and alcohol is distributed in our body water so that, so that, so that the, our mass really determines exactly what our blood alcohol levels will, will eventually be. So three drinks per occasion for women, four for men, and and no more than no more than 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 fourteen or twenty one drinks. So 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 a lower number per week. That defines normal drinking. Okay. So and uh, these are standard drinks, which are actually often smaller than what people drink today. So that's based on a, a, a percent alcohol by volume in wine of twelve percent. And many wines that are sold today are, are 16%. That, that, that rate is also predicated on assuming that the beer is 6% alcohol, and many of the new craft and home brews are, are, are 7 to 8%. So the drinks would have to be correspondingly smaller to stay within the limits. We call it, we call it a binge episode when, when someone has more, one more drink above that. So 
four drinks for women or five drinks for men in a single drinking occasion. And an occasion is about two to three hours. High-intensity drinking is add one more to those ones, so five and six drinks per occasion. Now, you know, all of us have been to college, and all of us have been to, met, met, you know, like graduate school or medical school. We've all exceeded those limits, I'm sure, at some point in our life. But we call those, we call those binge and high-intensity drinking episodes. Those episodes, if repeated on more than a weekly occasion, put people at very high risk for developing alcohol use disorder. Okay, and 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 they they sum into the dose dependent risk of developing cancer at a later point in life. So high intensity and binge drinking, uh, which is which is becoming kind of the norm in some populations, uh, is, is, is 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 a great concern. Um, one big point to, to make maybe here is that the rate of high intensity and binge drinking has really climbed in women in the United States over the last decade. Recent epidemiologic data show an 80% or more increase in, in high intensity and binge drinking in women and, uh, with, and, 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 and a corresponding another increase in elderly people, people over 60. So, 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 so drinking rates have been going up, not down, over the last decade. Uh, and uh, this has been an epidemic for, for the United States. It's been a silent epidemic. Uh, you know, the opiate epidemic gets all the, the, the news. And indeed, it's killing a huge number of people. But alcohol still wins. Uh, Alcohol-associated deaths are about 88,000 in the United States right now. Opiate deaths are in the 50 to 60,000 range so, uh, per year. So, so, so I hope that answers the question. I've been sort of a long way to answer about, about, uh, about what constitutes uh, drinking above a threshold. Uh, but but basically, if you're if you're down at two drinks a day on the average for women and three drinks a day on the average for men, you're at what's considered social drinking, and uh, and 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 that that that's a that's a that's a level that's that that appears to be associated with few health risks. I see. So, what is it about alcohol consumption on a biochemical level that causes this increased cancer risk? Well, that's a darn good question, and you know, like I think uh, uh, there 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 are several there are several hypotheses. First is a local toxic effect of alcohol on the cells of the epithelia. So the the greatest cancer risks occur where, where the concentration of alcohol is the greatest. So head and neck, mouth, you know, uh, esophagus. The, 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 the squamous cells there are literally in direct contact. With 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 with, uh, with with high concentrations of ethanol, and if you go up to to uh, to uh, a, a little higher a little higher level, um, you know, uh, the, if you drink uh, uh, distilled spirits, you know, there you have forty percent alcohol in direct contact with the uh, with the uh, epithelial cells. So local effects are number one. Um, an interesting an interesting concept is that is that like like many other like many other uh, organic compounds, um, there can be direct carcinogenic effects of alcohol and its metabolite, particularly acetaldehyde, which is uh, the first step of metabolism of alcohol. And, uh, and uh, so, so acetaldehyde is a, is a fairly well-known carcinogen. And if you, drink more, if you drink more alcohol, you get more acetaldehyde, and therefore that, that gives you increased risk. Um, alcohol induces... Uh, several of the cytochrome P450 uh, enzyme metabolism systems, particularly CYP2E1 and 2E1, uh, uh, can, convert, can convert other compounds that are potential carcinogens, like 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 things in tobacco smoke, or or you know compounds in tobacco smoke, or or or, or components of, of like uh, uh, cooked food into carcinogens. Um, there's 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 Alcohol seems to have a direct effect on DNA methylation, and um, and uh, and and that that is another possible pathway for uh, promoting tumors. And uh, finally, alcohol can affect have effects on the immune system, immune surveillance. It can be immunosuppressive, and uh, therefore uh, allow uh, cancers to escape normal immune detection and removal. Um, so th- those are those are some of the theories for for, for why. I should also mention the uh, the, uh, the 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 BRCA gene, the BRCA1 gene, uh, can be suppressed by alcohol, and thereby, therefore, therefore, uh, uh, lead to increased risk. And that's one of the theories for how how alcohol promotes breast cancer. Uh, I see. So, those are- so uh-huh. 
So how much do we really know about the correlation between cancer risk and alcohol? How well is it supported? Well, like how many studies are out there and how long have they been going on? Well, I think, I think there's probably more than a thousand epidemiologic studies of some sort um, on, on the topic. There have been uh, the, the, the most recent data. There's been an explosion of papers from China, which has a very high rate of esophageal cancer because there's a high rate of smoking and drinking alcohols that are better, 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 uh, uh, probably full of other carcinogens. Uh, if, anyone's, if anyone's had mutai or some of the uh, local Chinese uh, uh, distilled spirits, uh, you know, the, the, those things, you're, I don't think they're that, the, the distilling process doesn't remove a lot of the other aromatic hydrocarbons from them, you know, and that's maybe part of their charm. Mm-hmm. But, but, but uh, and, and smoking is quite popular in, in China, and air pollution uh, is the equivalent of smoking. So I think, you know, like... Uh, uh, so, so there's been a, there's been a lot of literature coming out and these are associations. So people who, you know, uh, you know, cancer develops relatively late in life usually. Um, and by the time cancers developed, many gallons of alcohol have been consumed or not. And, you know, many, uh, many, uh, cigarettes have been smoked or not. So, so these are associative studies and, uh, but the, the association appears pretty strong. Again, when you see something with an odds ratio, of, you know, of 20 or 30 X, um, uh, then, then you can you can really you can you can start you know making some good associations. Uh, I just saw a, a, when I was looking at some of the literature for this talk, um, I saw some papers saying that even 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 non in non smokers, the risk of lung cancer can be increased uh, in in a particular kind of cancer of the lung called adenocarcinoma. Of the lung uh, can in, there, there is an increased risk of of of, of adenocarcinoma in, in 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 drinkers who do not smoke. So, so I think the consensus is coming down to the the, the, the the consensus is coming to that the alcohol itself is a, is an important driver, uh, and if you add other risks to that, you add other things that are that are that are going to be uh, have, uh, uh, have carcinogens, uh, you can increase that risk uh, dramatically. What what other interesting theory for for the tobacco, the association of of cancer with alcohol, is that the alcohol actually acts as a solvent. For the for the for the nitrosamines, so in other words, they, they actually it actually just gets them. So the nitrosamines might be sitting on an epithelial border, unable to do much because they're in a, they're in, they're they're not in a, uh, a state that, that could be absorbed by cell. And you 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 solubilize them in alcohol, give them a path, give them a, a path of entry into the body. So I mean, there's 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 pretty interesting things that that, that go on that are going on with with that area. Um, I, I think what people are going to find is that all of the above are true to some extent. And that's why you end up with a uh, a, 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 a risk in, in some in some tissues that's fairly dramatic. So, one other uh, aspect of uh, alcohol and um, uh, cancer, uh, th- there is a potentially correlation between alcohol consumption and cancer. For example, and this is the mm-hmm. the, the, the question that the kind of um, probably everybody wants to know the answer to is the risk of um, the increased risk the same in young people as well as in older people. So, if they if they assume the same amount of alcohol. Um. So yeah, so 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 you're asking like if I'm a 30 year old postdoc or a 25 year old postdoc versus 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 a 55 year old principal investigator in an oncology research laboratory, and we both drink the same amount of alcohol and have pretty much the same environmental exposure, who has the most risk, right? Yes. Well, the, yeah. So so the the PI definitely is going to have more risk in the short term because he's older and, or she's older and has been around a long time. Um, so but. So some of these, some of the, the mechanisms I outlined above, um, will 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 be will be will be potentially more important in older people than younger people. Um, for example, if you already have uh, some uh, uh, immune suppression or you're having a senescent immune system, losing your immune surveillance for new carcinomas is going to potentially be more important. Um, However, however, if both people are starting drinking at the same time, the young postdoc has the greater cumulative has the greater risk because the, the, the risk is cumulative with drinking, and um, and uh, and uh, you know uh, I think that that person is going to be is 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 is, is going to have a, a higher risk of uh, of uh, of uh, of uh, uh, cancer promoted by 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 drinking. 
So it, it, it depends. It depends. You know, it depends where, where we're. It, 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 I think the older people are, of course, more risk because they're they're they're, you know, their 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 immune surveillance is breaking down. They've already had many insults. They've had they have uh, they have uh, uh, you know they've had they've had a longer time to promote uh, to promote uh, uh, bad cells. Uh, but the young people uh, have just as much risk. It's just going to express later. This is a dose dependent phenomenon. At least it seems to be in the epidemiologic studies. I see. Now, clearly, every person's individual risk of developing cancer is not only based on the environment, the environmental risk factors, but also on their genetics. So, yes. can a person's can a person's genes affect their risk of alcohol-related cancers? And if so, to what degree? Well, well, we sort of mentioned the, the BRCA gene. I think I think if you have if you have other genetic risks, alcohol should increase them, not decrease them. Um, I don't for, for alcohol consumption. So, so there are two there are two there are two nested questions in, your, in what you're asking. The first question might be, you know, like like for the same amount of alcohol, right? Does certain genetic subtypes increase, you know, incur either risk or benefit for cancer? And and the the, the suppression of the BRCA gene might be might be one of those. Um, that would do that. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the other direction is it, the certain genetic profiles increase the risk of drinking, thereby giving you a higher dose exposure to ethanol. And that we actually know better than, than, the, than, the, than the cancer side. And yes, there are genes that predict, there's, there are genetic patterns and familial patterns that predict higher drinking and higher intensity drinking in people. And uh, uh, and and uh, so those ones um, are, are are well known. Uh, so 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 you can have more drinking, and you can have you know like like or, or more risk for cancer. One of the most interesting associations. And this is absolutely amazing. This is work of a woman named Rachel Tyndall um, in Toronto. So for smokers, smokers who have more of the cytochrome P P four fifty two A one gene. So they have extra copies. They're hypermetabolizers at that gene. Smoke a heck of a lot more than other people. So that CYP2E1 is, invo- is, is involved in alcohol metabolism. CYP2A1 is involved in nicotine metabolism. Okay? So what happens in these people if they have a lot of CYP2A1 is they clear their nicotine much faster than other people. Okay? So they take every time they take a puff of nicotine, they get rid of it a lot quicker than you than, than, than other smokers or other you or you or I might. Okay, and that translates into increased intensity of smoking. So they smoke they smoke a lot more. And in fact, these are the people who wake up in the morning and smoke cigarettes right away. They have what a high was called a phagostrom score. They, they they have they're highly dependent on nicotine. So that's that stinks. There you got this gene that makes you if you smoke smoke a lot more. Like you you know you, you become a you know, that, that, that in the chain smokers that's. There's actually a genetic, a genetic force that, that makes them chain smokers. But the, even worse is that CYP2A1 metabolizes nitrosamine into carcinogenic nitrosamines from non-carcinogenic ones. So you not only smoke more, but you take the TARS and you make more, you make more of the, of the, of the, of the uh, cancer-causing components of those, right? And now you add alcohol to that, and you have a good-sized mess. So people who are have people who are hyper metabolizers at CYP two A one have a, have a much higher risk of, of, of smoking complications, including cancer, and and that's that's well described, and uh, and alcohol will, will 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 again will again will again push that up by having the effect on the CYP two E one, and 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 again making your you know metabolizing even more of your of your tars into carcinogenic materials. So let's shift gears a little bit. Um, and from all the news that we have right now about the link between cancer and um, alcohol consumption combination with smoking maybe, but um, what about prevention? And how does prevention reduce the risk of getting cancer in combination with alcohol consumption? And more f- furthermore, how does this um, uh, cancer risk change in persons if they stop uh, drinking alcohol um, and Another important question is, is there an immediate reduction in their risk if they stop drinking um, at a certain time? Well, okay. So, 
we don't we don't have a good preventive message here other than to keep your alcohol consumption down. I, I think you know and, and avoid coke carcinogens like 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 cigarettes. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't think there's a coherent public health message on this point yet. Uh, you know, the uh, because alcohol consumption is is so widespread and is such a deep part of humanity. It it it, it it's you know uh, you know we always advise people to drink less, but 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 we, we don't have a specific strategy around cancer. The uh, the uh, I think if you had a a specific you know genetic risk for cancer again the breast cancer genes. Uh, there's also an ADH. I didn't mention there's a uh, there alcohol dehydrogenase is a variant a variant of the gene that's been associated with some higher risk in cancer. If you, if you have one of these one of these uh, uh, these risks, obviously keeping your your alcohol consumption down would be really smart. Um, in terms of in terms of in terms of uh, in terms of uh, uh, in terms of other other um, uh, you know uh, uh, risk factors, uh, other preventive factors. I mean, I think I think one thing, one some papers, some literature has noted that that people who begin to, if you're getting any, if you're getting any symptoms of oral cancer, oral cancer or dysphagia, that you get those checked out right away. So that's not prevention, but it be, but but I'd have I'd have a much lower threshold in, in asking for an upper endoscopy in a patient with some swallowing difficulties if they're a drinker. Okay, I you know yeah. I think uh, yeah you, I think you'd absolutely want to you know image. Uh, uh, as as soon as, as as soon as feasible, uh, people with with uh, with any symptoms of possible esophageal cancer. Um, so I think the, I think the, the the prevention is more is more early detection uh, and 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 treatment uh, than 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 just uh, cutting down your alcohol. Unfortunately, um, I I know there's some interest in red wine as a more of a protective uh, uh, compound because of some of the antioxidants in it. Um, but 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 I think I think I, I wouldn't that's I wouldn't just switch my type of alcohol based on that. I would cut it down. You know, if, if switching cut your alcohol down, that would probably be the best thing to do. Um, you know, uh, the the uh, the uh, uh, the. So I'm I'm not sure I'm answering the question completely, but I'm, I'm I think I, the the answer is the answer is there aren't any firm recommendations at this point on prevention, other than don't okay. do it. Okay. Yeah. Well. After the break, we'll be back with Dr. Mendelssohn of RIA Health. So um, we have a short break right now. Um, and actually, I mean, I'm, I'm going to welcome you back right now, and then we continue with the recording, okay? Sure. sure. Okay. Uh, I think you're doing good. Thank you. It's <laughs> looking. Um, so, and welcome back. In today's program, Thanks. we're talking with Dr. Mendelssohn of RIA Health about the link between alcohol and the risk of cancer. Uh, in the link between alcohol abuse and cancer, is there a difference between drinking wine or hard liquor? Well, so to the extent that the, that the local concentration of alcohol in the uh, tissues that are most likely to develop cancer, uh, you know, is, dose, is concentration dependent, um, no. So, so, other, so if you dilute, if you dilute uh, uh, distilled spirits, so that there's there's uh, the same concentration of alcohol as there is in wine, um, they should have equal risk. Uh, uh, so the specific type of alcohol doesn't seem to have a lot of a, a lot of effect on 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 your on your risk. Um, so uh, 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 the the again the, the multiplier for risk for alcohol is is cigarette smoking and other carcinogen exposure. And uh, uh, so you, you, the alcohol acts as a multiplying factor for those always. But but the answer the answer is is that um, I think if you're going to drink uh, let's say uh, uh, bourbon neat, you know, with no ice, uh, like a, like a, like you're going to be a James Bond or you know like have a have a shot, right? You know, and then uh, 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 I think you're, you're, you those those drinks have a much higher concentration of ethanol, and they they often hurt. As they're as you're drinking them, so you know you, you see a, in, in the movies you always see the guy wince, and I think you know from my personal experience, I I would agree you you know when you try something of a very high alcohol concentration, it, it's not it, it's uncomfortable. Those are likely to be more damaging and more risky, as opposed to lower alcohol concentration uh, uh, beverages. So 
and this is another key question is look at the combination between uh, wine, hard liquor, or uh, say, for example, people that are currently in treatment, uh, undergoing chemotherapy, for example. Um, yeah. Is it is it is it safe for people to to combine or the drinking of alcohol uh, while they undergo treatment? I think what if, if you know many chemotherapies have a side effect of, of nausea and vomiting, so that's going to limit that's going to limit uh, limit uh, alcohol intake right there. I think that's going to be specific to each version of chemo. I think that's going to be a, a but in general, low. Low, low amounts of consumption of alcohol would, would if if people are drinking for pleasure and they enjoy it still, it's unlikely to contribute more risk to their situation. Um, in other words, if I if I had if I had esophageal cancer and was receiving some some treatment, would I still drink? Well, esophageal I might not, but breast I might. Um, you know, uh, uh, right? I think. Uh, I, that's a, it's a really good question. Actually, I haven't had a patient ask that one of, of me, and I haven't, and we have, and I haven't addressed it uh, in in uh, in, uh, in clinical practice. Um, I mean, most of the time, if if a patient asks a, a doc, one of us, you know, should he do, should he or she do something, and it was in any way associated with their problem, we tell them not to do it. You know, and and what's the what's 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 the um, you know, what's the uh, upside of me telling you to do something potentially dangerous? Nothing, right? So, uh, so, so in the exam room, I'm likely to tell you not to drink at all. But is there data to support that point? And I don't think there's, there's data one way or another. And I think if, 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 if low intensity, like, you know, an average of, you know, uh, two drinks a day uh, was your baseline alcohol consumption, and you really enjoyed it, and it made you feel good while you were undergoing treatment, I wouldn't be opposed to it, right? Uh, so I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think that, but, but again, in, 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 in a one-on-one relationship with a patient in the exam room, it, it's going to be hard for anyone to recommend it, you know, right? Yeah. Most, most people are going to say, most people are going to say, no, don't do it, you know? Well, so it's, it's like, actually safe like, to like, say like, that... Like, you can probably skydive. You can probably go skydiving when you're on getting chemotherapy, but I'm I'm not going to tell you to go do it, right? You know? Right. So, uh, in in all reality, it's it's something that uh, a patient should ask uh, their physician, um, and actually, it's, it's the information is between the physician and the patient to discuss their specific yeah. kind of uh, uh, problems in this yeah. case. Yeah, so that's a specific type of therapy. That's number one, and then number two, what what's the benefit of the alcohol? Okay. Right. I mean, alcohol really has no medical benefits. The benefit is getting intoxicated, you know, enjoying the, 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 the feelings that it generates the, uh, you know, the emotions and the moods. So there's no medical benefit to, to intoxication. So in some ways it's the wrong question to ask a doctor, right? The quite right question is, is this really enjoyable? And, and the in- interesting answer that would come out of that is if people aren't enjoying it, why are they doing it? And if the answer to that question is because they have withdrawal symptoms or they have more anxiety or something else, then they have alcohol dependence and cancer, right? And that, that and, 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 you know, like that will need to be dealt with one way or another. Um, so, so, so I think, I think the more interesting question and the more important question um would be would be would be uh, the people real the, the, this individual really have control over their drinking, and if they do, um, you know, the, then the only reason they should be drinking is is for the joy and the pleasure of drinking, not for any other reason. And if they're not doing that, then and they're not able to stop, then 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 they have then they have an alcohol dependence problem that needs to be addressed. And it can be you know, alcohol dependence is not always like it's not people in the gutter in the street. It's mostly people of the. 60 million Americans, it's mostly people who are fairly high functioning and, and, and have and don't have a lot of impairments due to their drinking, but have enough that they need to they need to, to stop. And this might be an example of a place where someone with a low level of, of, of abuse and dependence who can't cut down or stop um, or feels compelled to drink, uh, you know, uh, would, would actually merit treatment for their alcohol use disorder as well as their cancer. I see. So now that we have a reasonable idea of the problem, 
What are some strategies that people can do in their daily lives to either stop or limit their use of alcohol? Well, the, the first one is so obvious. You, you stop or cut down. I mean, you, you set limits. You know, you say, I'm not going to drink more than X, you know, like per unit of time. I think one of the most interesting ones amongst, you know, like this, you have a fairly educated population here in this particular broadcast. First thing to do is know how much alcohol you're drinking. So look at the label of your wine or your beer, and, and, and you can estimate your actual alcohol intake. It's actually not hard, right? And, uh, you know, uh, you, you know and, 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 and you, can, you can decide whether or not you're above your, the, the recommended levels. Uh, as posted by the World Health Organization or the or the uh, uh, the National Institute of Alcohol, Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse. Second is second is you know so set set limits set goals um, you know and uh, and uh, uh, you know keep alcohol in places that you know that, like and 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 if you're failing at that if you're failing at those limit setting or goal setting things and you're having some distress about that um, there's a lot of good treatment solutions out there for alcohol we offer one that we like quite a bit. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been an NIH-funded investigator and uh, addiction researcher for many, many years. And, uh, you know, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a large amount of evidence, uh, evidence-based interventions and systems that, 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 that allow people to either gain control of their drinking or to stop it entirely that are underutilized in Western society. Um, so uh, the NIH has, 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 has conducted, you know, spent a fortune on, on clinical trials demonstrating you know, medications that decrease uh, alcohol consumption. Um, and, and these medications are simply not used in clinical practice. It, it, it's truly amazing. Um, and, and, and so, uh, you know, the patients, that, so there are, there, are, there are medical management strategies to decrease alcohol consumption uh, that work. Um, there are also behavioral strategies that work. Uh, people don't have to go to a residential program or, you know, even join AA. Uh, though AA can be can be can be quite good for people who are looking for a social group or a social network, I think that would you know if I if, if someone has 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 limited social so you know their their social circle is fairly small they're limited they have a lot of isolation, uh, AA can even help with cancer treatment. Um, so I think uh, you know I think I think uh, uh, you know having a social network of people who support you is 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 really important to get through any form of medical catastrophe. So. Um, so, so, so the best ways to cut down are, you know, to cut down. And after you, if that fails, then you need people like me who actually offer treatments for alcohol addiction um, and dependence. And I think our big message there is that you don't have to be, you know, like completely out of control at the bottom of something. I mean, the mythology of, of addiction treatment is that you have to reach bottom and somehow be uh, completely incapacitated, you know, and have lost everything important in your life before you merit treatment. That's not a true statement. That would, that would be like telling a cancer patient you need to wait for, you know, what distant metastasis before you start a treatment. And, and we certainly don't recommend that in cancer, in cancer therapeutics. You know, uh, you know, great, you have a localized melanoma, you come back, come back when it's spread, you know, right? Then I'll, then I'll treat you. Would be, would be, would be considered, you'd be a lunatic. And that, but that's our approach to addiction treatment. You know, like, oh, you have a problem, you know, you're, you're, you're having a problem cutting down or controlling your alcohol at a time in your life. When you really need to, you know, when you should cut back, that you know, drinking to drinking to the point where you're nearly unconscious is certainly not going to help your cancer chemotherapy. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, drinking, of, you know, like like well above the, like, for example, we, we have patients in our program all the time who drink between one and two bottles of wine a night, right? Uh, well, that's that's not that's that's going to have you know, immunosuppressive effects. Uh, you know, like activate some of the enzymes we talked about. There's no way that's going to help your cancer chemotherapy. Okay, so so that person needs to cut back, and 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 we have tech, techniques and technologies to help with that. Um, so uh, so, uh, 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 but again, you know, we, we, we you don't have to you don't have to you know you can be functional, you can have a job, still have your relationships, you know, not have any had any uh, legal entanglements like DUIs, uh, you know, uh, and be enjoying life and and still have out of control alcohol use. Uh, and 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 there are paths to t- to take care of that that work and are, that don't require like you know spending going to you know some place where they have you know where it costs twenty five thousand dollars for a month you know or going to a church basement and sitting on a folding chair um, you know with people that you don't that you don't that you don't that that, that you don't get along with which would be the AA model cases okay I see okay 
Now we're, we're going to take a quick break, after which we'll be back with Dr. Mendelssohn of Rhea Health. And welcome back. Today we're talking with Dr. Mendelssohn of Rhea Health, and we're talking about the link between cancer and alcohol consumption. Dr. Mendelssohn, through Rhea Health, you're offering people the opportunity to meet with you online via confidential telemedicine appointments. And this makes it possible for you to help your patients anywhere in their own home at a time that's convenient for them. So how does a program that you develop for your patients look like? And what exactly goes into an online rehab program? Yes, thank you. So we what we've developed is based again on on many years of of, uh, of uh, research published uh, through the National Institutes of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse, and uh, and so we use evidence based techniques. Um, and but the key the key components of our program are that we have patients we we, we meet patients where they are. They don't have to come to us, and we we, we have a, a system where they get they get treatment in, in in small chunks of time. They don't have to devote whole days or weeks. To, to our program. Um, every patient in our program, we get them a breathalyzer, and they breathalyze twice a day. The breathalyzer actually quantifies the amount of alcohol they're, they're ingesting. So as I told you, you know, like, like men and women have different alcohols. Uh, if, 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 if a 110-pound woman drinks, drinks with her 220-pound boyfriend, and they drink exactly the same amount of alcohol, the 110-pound woman will have more than twice the blood alcohol level as a 220-pound man, and that's that. That's that. So 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 so, blood alcohol levels vary between individuals, and knowing the amount of alcohol in the blood tells you the amount of alcohol in the brain, and that's where the that's where the drug is doing its work and eventually promoting addiction. So, measuring alcohol, quant, quantifying alcohol levels in the body through breathalyzers is 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 one of the most important things we do. And we've built a system so people can do that simply. We have breathalyzers that pair to smartphones by Bluetooth and, and, and give us data on, on just how much alcohol people are consuming. And I describe that like it's like a speedometer. Unless you know how fast you're going, you really can't decide what your risk of a crash is. So step one, quantify alcohol. Step two, we offer coaching. The coaching is done in, in contrast to psychotherapy where Someone's exploring your relationship with your mother or other deep issues about who you are and what you do. Coaching is more of a positive, uh, you know, like uh, like uh, honesty system to keep to keep people moving forward and to and, and and to let them know when they're not when they're not achieving what they can achieve. So we do coaching, and the coaching is delivered either by uh, text messages or by conversations with the coach that usually last about five minutes or less. Number three, we use medications. The medications have been shown in clinical trials to, to either decrease the amount of alcohol people consume in a day, so decrease, decrease a alcohol consumption on a heavy drinking day, or to decrease the number of days drinking per week. Okay? So those are two separate phenomena. First, you can have a day where you don't drink at all, or you can have a day where you drink less on a particular day. And so those are, those are, those are, and, 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 and treatment modalities in, at least in, and the evidence-based universe are evaluated in those two in those two parameters. And finally, finally, we put all that together in an app and in a and a fairly easy to access technology that's uh, simple and relatively intuitive. And uh, and does uh, and that then that's what that's what we do. So what goes on in our program are a lot of small contacts, like people texting back and forth, you know, like uh, uh, you know suggestions for. Uh, you know, like making when, when we say make a concrete plan to cut down your drinking, we could have someone put that in the text and 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 in, and then tell us how it went. You know, I'm going to I'm going to take a walk before I have a drink tonight when I get home. Well, how did it go? Did you take your walk? You know, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to have I'm going to have like I'm going to get smaller glasses and and drink let you know drink only small beer out of small glasses and only have so many of them. Well, how did it go? Right, and and we also have a, a an adherence component for our medications where people can take a picture of the medication in their hand, right? But right, which, which documents that they, they use the medication. So, so we put all those things together and it sounds, it, you know, it doesn't sound complicated, um, uh, you know, but, but, but it, when you sum them all up, it, it actually has, it has, it has a, uh, it has a, uh, a, a striking benefit. 
The medications we use are uh, now Trexone is the leading medication. That's been uh, for, that's been known to be effective against alcohol uh, consumption for more than 30 years, and yet it, it has hardly been used at all. Um, there is a injectable ver- version of naltrexone called Vivitrol that's uh, that's uh, uh, shown some increased success because people, you know, they, the problem with the oral version they don't take it. Um, but but uh, but we found a way to make naltrexone work and work better, and, that, and that's through the breathalyzer. People have to be able to see how much you know the, 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 how much use has decreased over time. Um, we also use topiramate, gabapentin, baclofen. Um, and all these all these drugs have have uh, have uh, published evidence of efficacy. Okay, so, uh, so in terms of how we're doing, you know, how are we doing in some of this? Well, we've been we've been we've been operational since last January, so it's we're coming up on eleven months, and we've enrolled over that time a, a, a large number of patients, and most of them are sticking with us. Our 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 average patient stays with us voluntarily. They, they're not they're not no one's coerced into our program and you know there's no like you know these are all people doing their their normal thing in their daily lives um our average patient stays is about seven months uh over that time period uh people suppress their drinking from 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 uh from whatever baseline they start at and it's usually an average of of uh for cognoscenti out there it's an average of 0.09 to 0.10 uh is the baseline blood alcohol levels they suppress that from, from, from that level down to, to less than a 0.04. Um, so we get about a 60% suppression of, 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 of objectively measured alcohol consumption. And that effect happens usually in the first two months and persists for the full eight months the patients remain in the program and likely beyond after they stop paying for our services. Um, we're also showing an increase in non-drinking days per week from an average of, from an average of 1.5 to an average of, 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 of 4.2 days per week. So, so people don't have, they have days they don't drink at all. And for many people, that's revolutionary. They've never had those before, or at least since they've been, been adults. So, uh, so, uh, so, uh, uh, I think that's, that, so, so we're, we're doing very well. We, you know, the, the, uh, the, the biggest news is for, for us, we think the biggest scientific news is the persistence of, of participation. Uh, the biggest problem with, that, that for, for addiction, uh, many people, if, if, if any of your listeners have addiction, they're going to know this. But the big problem is that the little voice that says, oh, I can have one, you know, I don't need to, or this isn't so bad, or I don't really have to fix this. This is actually okay. It's, it's, that, it's that voice, that a voice of inertia and denial that, 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 uh, that prevents action. And, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and that little voice, that little voice crawls out all the time with, with people. And so the fact that they persist in treatment means that they're able to manage that voice. You don't necessarily banish it. You don't make it go away completely. You manage it so that your, your consumption falls into a, norm, a more normal range. Our theory is that, is that when you nor, if, so if you look at people, and if I'm going on too much here, just tell me to, but if you look at people who've been through treatment programs, so, you know, like been in the residential program, and people who participated in AA with that and achieved a period of sobriety, you look at them five or 10 years later, about 80% of them are drinking, but at lower levels. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so, so our theory is that if people, if people readjust their alcohol consumption over a year or two year period, that could persist. That could persist. Okay. And, and so we can retrain them to, 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 to get the lower levels of consumption and the medications can really help that. It's a little like managing asthma. Right, you know, you really can make a difference over time. So, so who are the people that could benefit from something like this over a traditional rehab? Well, I, 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 any, I think anyone. There are very few people who need a traditional rehab over what we're offering. Okay, meaning that they need a, you know, they need to be in a safe place, completely separated from their community and their loved ones. Um, I think. You know, I, I, I think we're positioned to be the a first line treatment for just about anyone who wants to cut down their alcohol or, or control it. Um, the uh, the uh, the uh, uh, we've sent a few patients that have, have not done well in our program and have gone to a residential program. But 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 we're we're a first line. We're a good first line because we're affordable. 
we're done in your home, you know, in your community. And because we, we, we have, we have, we have known efficacy targets that we can, that we can use and we can, we can tell patients that they're not doing well too. You know, we could, we, we're, we're completely aware of when people aren't achieving the goals they need to achieve. So, um, so, uh, so I think, I think we're, I think we're a better first line treatment than, than, than almost anything else available at the present time. The, uh, and again, it's because we get the objective measures, we have the support, you know, we have, we have the, uh, the ability to, 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 to do this in people's community in real time, in real life, and, and to monitor adherence as well. So, uh, um, so, so we're, we're obviously, I, I, you know, we're, we're quite happy with the way it's working out. I think from the perspective of a, of a science guy who actually has done clinical trials in this area, uh, the thing that's been most amazing to me is the persistence in treatment. So we, we kind of anticipated early that we'd have people start, go for a month and quit and come back three months later, stay for two months and quit and then come back six months later and stay for a year, you know, like that. But our patients are staying with us right at the bat, right off the jump and, and, and breathalyzing, giving us the data, right? So, so that, that's, that's been, that's been the most amazing thing. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, one that's, that, that shows that, that in, you know, one of the other myths in alcohol treatment is that the patients don't want to get better, but that's not true. The patients just want a treatment system, and we're proving it. They just want a treatment system that's accessible and not too nuts in its own. I mean, think about it. You know, like every, if you have a problem with your behavior and you're told you have to go to this 28-day program, right, and give up your job, give up your, give up your, your, your marriage, give up your family life, right, and spend a fortune, like buying a car, you know, that's the cost of these programs is like buying a new car for one month, right? You know, th- this is not a palatable choice. This is not a palatable choice, right? This is a choice you'd rather not make. So, um, so, so we're, we're giving, we're, we're, we, we have an alternative to that choice. So as a last question, uh, we are right now at the end of the program, but in your experience with your patients, and this may be related to uh, cancer or cancer risk or, or not, but what in your perception is the most difficult aspect for people to stop drinking too much? Um, well, getting started, to be honest with you, getting started is the, is the hardest part. The inertia, the inertia of, 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 of this is never going to change. Right. And 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 the, the inertia right now that that it's not modifiable unless unless you do all this, you know, that you have to you have to rip out every part of your life. And and, and now, you know, the language, the language used around addiction is just stunning. And if we were to use it around cancer, it would be, it'd be so cruel. So, you know, we tell people that they're that if they're drinking they're we, we tell them they're clean or they're dirty. You know, you're going to get clean. Well, if not, you're dirty. You know, you, you know, we don't, you know, some doctors used to say for cancer, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're, you know, you got a dirty scan. Well, that's not the right language, is it? You know, we tell people that they, they either, and, and cancer is a little this, they're either lapsed, you know, people, people go into recovery. And, and so you have to, you have to recover something and then you can have a relapse. Well, if you relapse, that means you were lapsed to begin with, right? And being lapsed is a sort of a, a spiritual term for not having God. That, that's pretty bleak, right? You're a lapsed person, and the best you can do is to go to is to relapse or recover. You know, so so the language is is completely pejorative, and uh, and uh, uh, and 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 makes people not want to to to, to 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 face. You know, not I mean, what I wanted, what I wanted, go in for a medical therapy where I was told I was a dirty person. You know, who uh, who uh, uh, you know like uh, needed an intervention. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's wrong words, wrong words. Um, so, uh, so the inertia of getting started is partly due to the disease itself and partly due to the, the kind of stigma we place on it. Um, when I was a medical student, cancer was really stigmatized. You know, there were people, there were people who, there were people who, uh, patients, you know, families didn't want to take their, 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 their mom home with cancer because they thought they might get it, you know, and no one said the C word. It was a word you didn't talk about. Um, you know, today cancer is completely destigmatized. Uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, even, even cancers that where, where personal behaviors play a, a large role in acquiring them, like, like lung cancer with smokers, it, you know, we're not blaming the, the cancer patient for their cancer. Um, but addictions are still highly stigmatized and, uh, and, and, and there's a lot of blame and guilt, uh, 
and shame and and shame is never good um you know so i think i think uh i think uh, uh that that's our big challenge is 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 is, is overcoming the shame the stigma the, the guilt and 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 you know using a language framework that that doesn't that that isn't by itself pejorative and negative The interview you've just heard with Dr. Mendelssohn was recorded on November 17, 2017. For more information about Dr. Mendelssohn and Rhea Health, please visit the company's website at riahealth.com. That is R-I-A health.com. On this website, there's also an alcohol use survey, a brief 11-question survey which is designed to help you assess your drinking habits. We know that based on this interview, you may have questions. So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. We'll post as many answers as we can on our website, oncozine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncozine Brief. The Oncozine Brief was produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hoffland, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from our listeners and commercial underwriters. For more information about underwriting options, contact Sean Mayer at 949 923 1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and informational purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.